Hi folks, we want to welcome you to our adult Sunday school time here at the Kerbinsville Christian Church. And we're continuing right along in our survey of the Old Testament. We're up to, and we're actually coming to the, towards the end of our study in First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles. Uh, today we're going to focus on our second part of looking at the life of Hezekiah from 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13, through chapter 20, verse 21, as well as 2 Chronicles chapter uh, 32, verses 1 to 33. Now, this is lesson 22. We probably have about two or three more lessons uh, before we finish up our series here and then move on in our survey. So let's take a look today. We've already looked last week at Hezekiah his coming and his wanting to reestablish the worship of Yahweh, setting in order the temple, opening it, setting the priests to consecrate themselves. He's celebrated Passover. He's done a lot of reforms. He has done more than any other king before him or after him in removing the altars in the high places. Uh, he's quite a guy. So we're going to see now that his reign is not without difficulty. There are some things that happen and we're going to see how he responds to it. Now, as always with these narratives, again, you're only going to see what the Lord wants you to see through the passage, but I need to also acknowledge that what we're talking about here is human beings. We like to sometimes place Hezekiah on this pedestal as being this great, awesome warrior for the Lord, and he was, but he was also human. And with that, we're going to see some of his frailties today as well. So let's get right into it. We're going to start with the Assyrian invasion. Now remember, it was the Assyrians who took and conquered the northern kingdom and carried them away into exile and in the meantime brought other peoples that he had conquered to take over the northern part of Israel. Now we're going to come to Hezekiah's reign and of course we saw that at one point that Hezekiah was a vassal state to the Assyrian Empire, but he decided to stop doing that. And of course, there's going to be some consequences for that. So let's take a look here. So in the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign, Zennacherib took all of the fortified cities of Judah. So after 14 years of being the king, establishing all of these things that he was doing, Zennacherib comes and basically takes away everything except Jerusalem. Now the chronicler records that Zerachanib entered Judah after Hezekiah's deeds of faithfulness. Now I think there's something here. If you look at the narrative, both in Kings and Chronicles, especially when it referred to Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, it was very much the idolatry that was taking place in Judah at the time, at the direction of Ahaz, it is very evident from the text that there was the influence of the Assyrians on Judah to do this. So here we have Hezekiah. He's bringing reform. He's doing the exact opposite. He's getting them to cease doing uh, this, being a vassal to uh, Assyria, and Zerachadev now comes after these reforms are taking place, and he comes to uh, take away Judah and, of course, defeat Hezekiah. 
Now, Hezekiah, now this is where we see his frailty. Hezekiah sent a message to Zerachanib and confessed that he had done wrong in rebelling. So Hezekiah is doing what he's, would any good king would do. He's trying to possibly alleviate the possibility of war, pestilence, famine, a siege, death. And he's saying, look, I made a mistake. Uh, I was wrong in rebelling against you. So he asks Zerachanib to name any price to impose and that he will pay it. So he's saying, you name your price. You name anything that you want me to pay as reference to a penalty for what I've done, and I will do it. Now, Zerachanib imposed a tribute of 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So he's asking for a lot, a lot. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver from the temple and the king's palace. So basically, Hezekiah decides to give him everything that he has because he's trying to get this 300 talents of silver and these 30 talents of gold. Not only did he give him everything that was in the treasuries of the temple and the king's palace, but he also had to go looking for more. So what did he do? He, Hezekiah also stripped all the gold from the temple doors and the pillars. Now remember, this is the temple that Solomon had built, and he built it in such grandeur. And remember, gold was like silver in those days. It was flowing freely, and so these doors of the temple were, were covered with gold. Well, Hezekiah is stripping that gold because he needs the gold to pay this tribute to Zennacherib. And after being paid the tribute, Zennacherib sent a large army to take Jerusalem. Now, what a guy. Sennacherib, he's there to punish. Hezekiah says, I'll pay you anything, just stop. I'll take 30 talents of gold, 300 talents of silver. Of course, Hezekiah does that. But guess what? Sennacherib is still going to make him pay, so he sent a large army to take Jerusalem. Now, anticipating that this might happen, the chronicler records that Hezekiah had the springs surrounding Jerusalem stopped up. Now what Hezekiah is doing here is, is or he knows that Zennacherib is possibly going to come and that means besieging the city. And of course when you do that, that's not going to be like a couple of week event, that's going to be months, maybe years. And so when you have an army outside of the gates and outside of the walls of Jerusalem, they're going to need resources. What kind of resources are they going to need? Well, they're going to need food. You can't do anything about that, but they're going to need sources of water. They're going to need water sources. So guess what? Hezekiah has the people go around in the area around Jerusalem, probably pretty far, and stop up all of the springs and wells, cover them up, close them up so that they can't be used. Hezekiah also had the defenses of Jerusalem repaired and reinforced. There was a text will tell you that it was a wall that had to be rebuilt. Plus he had other walls and stuff built as well. And he reinforced the army with better military gear. Hezekiah called the people to be strong and courageous in the face of the Assyrian army. 
So basically, he, he, he's not just the, the guy who's directing things. He also has to be the morale person. He has to be the encourager, to encourage the people not to worry about it, put their trust in the Lord, and be strong and courageous in the face of the Assyrian onslaught. Now, <clears throat> here's what happens. This, a significant portion of the passage is spent with regards to what happens next, and it's some messengers, a messenger who comes from Zennacherib to bring a message to Hezekiah. So messengers from the Assyrians brought a message, messengers from Assyria brought a message to Hezekiah from Zennacherib. So here they are, they're bringing this message for the king. Now, of course, the king's not there on the, on the wall listening to the message. It would be his servants. But here's what happened. These messengers, here's what they do. They mock Hezekiah for trusting in his plans or a possible alliance with Egypt. Now, Egypt was its own empire. We know that from history. And with that, the pharaoh would have been an enemy of the Assyrians. We know that from history as well. And so what they're assuming, the Assyrians are assuming, is, is the only reason why Hezekiah is rebelling is, is he must have formed an allegiance against Assyria with the Egyptians. Or he maybe has some grandiose plan on his own. And the, they're mocking him for possibly doing this, for having these thoughts of rebelling against the Assyrian king. They also mocked Hezekiah for trusting the Lord since the high places were taken down. Now here, I want you to notice something. This is an obvious indication that the Assyrians have no understanding of the worship of Yahweh. They, from a polytheistic viewpoint, would view altars to various gods as being a good thing. And so word obviously has gotten back to the Assyrian king that Hezekiah, with his reforms, and remember it is told very clearly, he told Judah to only worship the Lord at the temple. They, were to, they removed all the other altars, they removed all of the high places. So the Assyrians now are coming and they're mocking Hezekiah for, well, you say you're worshiping the Lord, but you take, took down all of these high places. That's saying, first of all, they don't understand that the worship of Yahweh was to take place only at the temple where his presence was and God had commanded them not to worship in these high places. So they're mocking Hezekiah. And I think it's because they don't understand they mocked Hezekiah for declaring that Judah will only worship at the altar in the temple. Remember, it was because of the Assyrian king that Ahaz had set up a, another altar in the temple to the gods of Damascus. And so they're mocking Hezekiah for declaring that Judah will only worship at the altar, Yahweh's altar, the bronze altar, in the temple. They called Judah to give allegiance to Zennacherib and he will give them 2,000 horses. In fact, the text says that they'll give him 2,000 horses if they could find enough men to ride the 2,000 horses. Again, they're mocking them. 
They're mocking them for thinking, oh, you're going to rebel against us? Well, you know, if you come to us, we'll give you 2,000 horses if you could find 2,000 guys to ride them. They proclaimed that they had been directed by the Lord to destroy Jerusalem. Now, that's an interesting thing when you read it in the text. They proclaimed that they had been brought there by the Lord to destroy Jerusalem. Now, in this portion of Scripture, it is very obvious that this is not true. This is just something that they're saying to demoralize Judah, Jerusalem, and Hezekiah. What is obvious later when we look at the Babylonians, it's very evident from the prophets that God did direct the Babylonians to later come and wipe out Judah. But in this instance, what they're saying here is all part of a propaganda campaign to, to demoralize Jerusalem and Hezekiah. Now, it's interesting, Hezekiah's servants called the messenger to speak in Aramaic and not Hebrew. Now, Aramaic would have been the trade language of the area, whereas most of the Jews probably just spoke Hebrew. They're not wanting the people to understand. They did not want the people to hear the message from Sennacherib. So basically, they're saying to this messenger, hey, you talk to us in the diplomatic language. You talk to us in Aramaic. You only, we don't want, they didn't really want anybody else to hear the message. Well, that only provokes the messenger. The messenger replied that he was sent by his master to speak to the people as well as Hezekiah. Do you see the psychological warfare aspect going on here? It's not that he's just trying to intimidate and scare Hezekiah. He wants to intimidate and scare the people of Jerusalem. Why? Because if they are fearful of the Assyrians, it's possible that they would overthrow their own king and therefore surrender to the Assyrians. That's what's going on here. The messenger told the people not to listen to their king concerning deliverance from the Lord. Now, this is pretty bold. Remember, now Hezekiah has told them, be strong and courageous. Look to the Lord. He's been encouraging them in the worship of the Lord, bringing them back to God. Now this messenger shows up. Of course, he's a pagan. He's, he's, he's an Assyrian who worships his own gods, and he's saying, don't listen to him, telling you to trust the Lord, trust in deliverance. Now, here's why he says that. <clears throat> he goes on and he says, the messenger offered the people peace if they would surrender to the Assyrian king. He basically promises them, promises them a piece of land with groves and, 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 and food products, olive trees, so forth, if they would just give. He's saying everything will be okay if you just surrender to the Assyrian king. But here's what he's pointing out when he says, don't listen to the king. He said, the messenger stated that the gods of the other nations could not save them from Assyria. Well, we know that's true because the gods of the other nations are nothing. But the messenger is saying here that Israel's God, Yahweh, is not going to be able to do anything for them because the other gods couldn't do it. The other gods couldn't help them. 
So the messenger questioned whether the God of Israel could deliver Jerusalem. Now, here's what's happening here, folks. I want you to see there's a shift going on here. He has gone from basically belittling Judah and Jerusalem and its people and its warriors and belittling the king to now the messenger in his arrogance is belittling, the Assyrians are belittling the God of Israel and basically saying that the God of Israel cannot deliver Jerusalem. The God of Israel is going to be just as helpless as the other gods of these other nations that we have defeated. So he is now mocking the God of Israel. Now we have seen this throughout the history of Israel that when that happens, that is a very provoking thing to the God of Israel. And God shows himself to be mighty. And we're going to see that now. So the people held their peace and did not answer because Hezekiah had commanded them not to. So the people just were quiet. They didn't say anything. They're listening to this message. And the reason why is because Hezekiah told them, don't reply to them. So Hezekiah's servants then reported to him the words of the messenger with their clothes torn. So again, they tore their clothes in mourning, in grief, and reported to the king the message. Now, here's what we're going to see happening here. We're going to see, first of all, the response of the king. All right? So Hezekiah responded to the message by mourning in sackcloth and ashes. He tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth. He covered himself with ashes. All a sign of humbling himself and mourning. He went to the temple. Hezekiah went to the temple and sent his servants to the prophet Isaiah. Now again, we're seeing another prophet that we have a book from in the scriptures being mentioned here. And that is Isaiah. Now let me just stop. As we talk about Isaiah, I need to mention that when you go to the book of Isaiah, chapters 36 through 39 in the midst of the prophetic passages, serve as a transition. They are narrative, and they record these events in the book of Isaiah as well. So Hezekiah, he goes to the temple. He's in the sackcloth and ashes. He's in mourning. He's grieving, and he sends his servants to the prophet Isaiah. They told Isaiah the words of the messenger and called Isaiah to pray for the remnant. All right, now this is an interesting word, remnant. It's used oftentimes throughout the scripture. And basically, it refers to the remaining, the little bit of believers who are left. Now, what is it talking about remnant here? Well, when you talk about remnant here, remember, everything else in Judah has been taken by Zennacherib. The northern kingdom with its ten tribes are already taken and carried away into exile. What is left is just the remnant of Israel in Jerusalem besieged by the Assyrians. So basically they're saying, look, go to the Lord and pray for the well-being of the remnant. We are what's left. That's a significant thing to be praying for. 
Now, here's what happens. Isaiah reported that the Lord called them not to be afraid of the messenger's words. So Isaiah reports back and says, hey, the Lord says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the messenger's words. The Lord will send a spirit upon the Assyrian king to return to his own land where he will die. So again, something's going to happen where God is orchestrating the events and there's going to be some sort of a spirit and he's going to hear a rumor and he's going to return back to his own land. And when he gets back to his own land, he will die. He will die. Now, of course, guess what happens immediately? The text tells us the Assyrian king heard a rumor that Ethiopia, the land of Cush, was coming out to battle with him. So, okay, so he's, he's not worried about the alliance with the Egyptians, but there's another army to the south, and that is the Ethiopians. And so he's concerned about that the Ethiopians are coming up from his southern flank to engage with him. So he heard this rumor. <clears throat> now, the Assyrian king sent another message to Hezekiah not to think that he will be delivered. So as the Assyrian king has heard this rumor, he's taking precautions, he's getting ready to leave because of this rumor of this army coming up from the south, he kind of sends a message to Hezekiah like, hey, things, don't let this be an encouragement to you. Don't think you're getting out of this. Nobody's going to deliver you. These circumstances aren't in your favor. Again, he told Hezekiah that the gods of the other nations could not save them from Assyria. So again, the king is making this personal with regards to the God of Israel. He is saying, your God can't help you because the other gods couldn't help their nations. So this is getting personal now. So when Hezekiah received the message, he laid it out before the Lord in prayer. Maybe you've heard this story. Maybe you were taught this in Sunday school or read about it. You know, when, when this news came of impending doom on Jerusalem, Hezekiah then took the letters and laid them out before the Lord in prayer and said, God, you need to do something. Maybe you've done that yourself with regards to some issue in your life where you've gone with him and said, Lord, here it is. I need you to do something. So that's what he's doing here. Hezekiah asked the Lord to hear the threats of Zanacharib and save them from him. God, pay attention. Hear what's going on. Save us. That's what's happening here. He wanted the Lord to save them so that the kingdoms of the world will know that he alone is God. All right, now here's what separates Hezekiah's prayer from the average prayer. The average prayer would be, oh God, Zanacharib is, is threatening us and he's going to hurt us. You save us from Zanacharib, Lord. You help us out, Lord. We need you. That's an average prayer. When you think about Hezekiah's prayer, it goes beyond the average. Why? Because Hezekiah understands what's going on here. This is not just an affront to Jerusalem and the people. 
This is not just a threat to the Jerusalem and its people. This is a threat to the entire system of Israel where they worship one God who is the God of the universe who said he would protect them. And so Hezekiah is praying that the Lord will deal with Sennacherib and in the process make sure that the other nations around when they hear what happens will know that there is no God in this world except one and he is the God of Israel. They, he wants them to know that he, Yahweh, alone is God. That's what sets his prayer about. He's not just interested in his own personal well-being and the well-being of his people. He is interested in the glory and in the integrity and in the reputation of his God. That's what's happening here. And that's what's going on. So here's what happened. We see again the prophet Isaiah Isaiah proclaimed that the Lord has heard the king's prayer because Hezekiah prayed. Wow. All it took was Hezekiah praying. And he sends a prophet in and says, look, I heard your prayers. I heard your prayers, Hezekiah. God has heard your prayers because you prayed. You prayed. You know, I, oftentimes I think, okay, again, this is narrative. This is not prescriptive but we can see something here we can learn something here and, and that is that maybe sometimes why we don't see God doing things is because we don't ask him isn't that what James says you have not because you ask not you have not because you ask not oh it goes a little bit further and says you have not because you ask amiss well because our motives are wrong I don't think the motives are wrong here it's because Hezekiah prayed and he didn't just pray for himself and his people. He prayed for the glory of God. And God says, I've heard your prayer. I've heard your prayer. So the Lord proclaimed his greatness. So what you see that follows in this, this past, this message from Isaiah, from the Lord, what follows is really a statement from God. And, and the Lord proclaimed his greatness as the protector of Jerusalem. So he basically says, I am the one. So it's a message not just for Jerusalem, but for Zennacherib. The Lord tells Zennacherib that he will not come into the city, nor will he attack it. He says, there won't even be one bow shot. You're not even going to lift a hand to enter into the city. Nothing's going to happen. You're not going to come into the city. You're not even going to raise your sword arm or, or raise a bow and shoot in any way there will be nothing that happens isn't that amazing so the lord states that Zennacherib will return by the way that he came so the road he took in to get here is the road that he's going to take on the way out that's the point that he's making here this is really an awesome statement from god the Lord stated that he will defend Jerusalem for the sake of David. This is the city of David. Why the sake of David? Because, my friends, this goes all the way back to something even deeper than just his relationship with David. 
Because through the line of David will come the Messiah. And this is what it's ultimately about in God's eyes. Is the issue of maintaining the line. Maintaining Israel to fulfill its promises. Protecting the remnant until that time. And so for the sake of David and the covenant that he made with David, he will defend Jerusalem. That's what he's saying here. So guess what? The text then goes on in describing the invasion. It says that on a certain night, the angel of the Lord went out and killed 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. Now, it's again, we've seen the uh, angel of the Lord the angel of the Lord is not just an angel, it is God himself. So, and, and oftentimes we very much feel that this is the second person of the Trinity. This is Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He goes out and in one night, 185,000 of their mighty men of valor, their best warriors, are killed in the Assyrian camp. When the people rose early in the morning, they found the corpses of the dead. So in the morning, the next morning, they get up, oh, they're wiping the, wiping the sleep out of their eyes, they're yawning, they're looking around, and there are bodies everywhere because 185,000 of them are dead. I'm sure the camp must have been silent at first before the screaming started. Sennacherib departed and returned home in shame to Nineveh. In fact, the text very clearly says that he returned home, the chronicler says, shame-faced. This is a blow. Now, you know, shame and honor mean nothing in our culture. We're more guilt-oriented, but the whole issue of shame and standing has a lot to do in Eastern cultures, much like the culture in Israel at this time in the surrounding nations. So here's a guy who's really been boasting that the God of Israel can't do anything against him and 185,000 of his mighty warriors are killed in one night. So guess what? He goes by way that he came, shame-faced. Shame-faced. God was bringing judgment. Now it says that when Zennacherib went to the temple of his God, he was killed by his sons. Two of his sons killed him. Obviously, the shame of the defeat was too much for them to handle in the Assyrian kingdom. They killed their dad and took off, and a third son was then made king of Assyria. That's pretty wild, isn't it? But this is exactly what God said would happen. That Zennacherib would not enter in Jerusalem, that he would go back home and he would die there. That's exactly what's happened. Well, we come to chapter 20 now of 2 Kings, verses 1 to 11. And when we're in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verses 24 through 30, we're going to see a reference here to Hezekiah's sickness. Now, Isaiah also refers to this in chapters 36 through 39. Isaiah will tell you what exactly they did when God pronounced his healing to take care of the illness. Now, Kings and Chronicles do not tell us that. So that's what we're going to focus on here today. So during this time, so during this whole issue of the Assyrian crisis, or the Assyrian crisis, 
Hezekiah became sick and was near death. Okay? So he got some sort of sickness. Now Isaiah gives us a better picture of what's going on here. It might have been some sort of boil of some sort. But he's become sick and he's near death. Now Isaiah came to the king and stated that the Lord had told him to set his house in order. That whole issue of setting your house in order in the scripture kind of refers to you know that you're going to die. So you just kind of get everything ready, whatever needs to happen to set things in order for when you pass away. We saw the same thing when, remember, the counselor who was giving counsel, David's best friend who was giving counsel to his son Absalom. And when his counsel was rejected, he went back home and what? set his house in order, and the next day he hung himself. So that's what it means when it's, you set your house in order. Now Hezekiah prayed and wept before the Lord, saying that he had been a faithful servant. Now again, this is his humanity, and you and I understand exactly what he's doing here. What do you mean? Well, George, think about it. He's praying and saying, God, I've done all this good stuff really does this have to happen right now yeah yeah this is how we pray isn't it i've done it you've done it hezekiah's doing it. now here's the interesting thing what i want you to see is how quickly god responds before isaiah made it to the middle court the word of the lord came to him as he was leaving so here's what's happening. The text tells you that obviously as Isaiah is leaving, the king's by himself. He's praying and crying out to God. God help him. He's reminding the Lord, haven't I done all these great things? He's weeping. He's humbling himself. Before Isaiah can go to the middle court. Now obviously the palace must have been set up with different courtyards where certain people could be allowed in. So before he makes it to the third court, God Boom, replies right back and tells him, go back to the king. Here's what I want you to tell him, okay? So the word of the Lord came to him as he was leaving. The Lord told Isaiah to tell the king that he has heard his prayer and has seen his tears. So it didn't take any time at all. God says, I've heard his prayer. I've seen his tears. The Lord will heal the king and that the king will come to the temple on the third day. So he's saying, look, tell him he's healed and on the third day he's going to be well enough to be able to go to the temple himself on the third day. Wow. Now, it's interesting. Here's what we're going to see happening. This is kind of like what happens with Gideon. What do you mean? I'll tell you in a moment. First of all, the Lord says he will add 15 years to the king's life and that he will deliver Jerusalem from Assyria. Now again, this is happening during the Assyrian crisis. He's saying, I'm going to add 15 years to your life and I'm going to deliver you from Assyria. Now here's what Hezekiah does. Hezekiah asked, what would be the sign that this would take place? Now, here's the thing. Some people would say, well, you know what? Asking for a sign is a bad thing. Now, here's what I want you to see. This, again, is not rebuked by the Lord. 
In fact, what we're going to see is, is that he gives him a sign. In fact, there's another time when God says, I'm going to give you a sign, but his father Ahaz said, I'm not going to ask him. And he says, well, I'll give you a sign. And that's where we get the prophecy of the virgin birth. Now, listen, Gideon did the same thing. God said, go and fight against the Midianites. And uh, he said, well, you know what? I need a sign that you're telling me to do this. And he asked not just one sign, but two signs. Now, listen to me. There's not anything wrong in asking God to reinforce your faith. That's what's happening here. It's a reinforcement of faith. This is not grasping for straws trying to figure out what God's will is. He knows what God's will is. God says, I'm going to heal him. But Hezekiah wants his strength, his faith strengthened to believe that it will take place and says, what sign will the Lord give me? What sign will the Lord give me? And, and the sign is interesting because it tells you that what God does is a miracle. So Hezekiah requested that the shadow go backwards 10 degrees rather than forward. Okay, have you ever been outside? Like, okay, right now as I'm recording this, it's pretty sunny outside. So if you have a stick and as the sun moves through the horizon, there's a shadow that casts off of the stick and that shadow will move. In their days, they had sundials to help them determine time. And so Hezekiah is saying, rather than the shadow going forward, how about if the shadow goes back 10 degrees? So that's against nature. Because as you progress through the day, the sun is moving from the east to the west. And of course, the shadow would move with that. He's really asking for the sun to move backward so that the shadow goes back 10 degrees rather than forward. It's an amazing sign that he's asking for here. And guess what the text tells us? That God did that. God moved it forward. Now, here's what happens next. We're going to come to 2 Chronicles. We're going to focus on chapters 32, verses 25 through 30. And what I want you to see now is, is that uh, we're going to see that there is a result that happens out of this. Now, let me just stop for a moment. Some people like to say, and maybe there's some validity to what they're saying, but the text doesn't say this, is that in that 15 years, the next king, Manasseh, would be born, and he turned out to be evil. So it was a wrong thing for Hezekiah to ask to be alive rather than die. If he had died, maybe things would have turned out better. There's no guaranteeing that they would, okay? Now, here's what I want you to understand. The issue here is Hezekiah is naturally asking what comes into everyone's heart when they're told they're going to die. I want to live. And God answered him. He didn't rebuke him. He answered him. He even gave him a sign that it was going to happen. Okay? Now, what we do see when we come to chapter 32 is the chronicler tells us that God is also watching to see how this will be handled. So the first thing I want you to see is God's wrath did not come in Hezekiah's days because he humbled himself before the Lord. 
So the text will tell you that Hezekiah did not respond to the healing the way that he should have. He kind of got lifted up in pride. And because of that, God's wrath was going to come upon them. Well, obviously someone told him, maybe a prophet, maybe Isaiah, that this was happening, and the king humbled himself. And so it says that God's wrath did not come in Hezekiah's days because he humbled himself before the Lord. But we also see that God blessed Hezekiah in a lot of ways. So Hezekiah has great riches and honor as he provided for the city of Judah with abundance. So out of his riches and abundance, he also shares the wealth, so to speak, with the other cities of Judah to make sure that they're okay. It also tells us one of the achievements of Hezekiah is that he also brought water to the west side of Jerusalem through a tunnel. It's called Hezekiah's tunnel, tunnel. And if you were to go to Jerusalem today, you will still see this tunnel. It is still there to this day. And it was a way to bring water in to the city in case of a siege, in case they were being attacked. And so that's what we're seeing here now. Now, when we go now back to 2 Kings chapter 20, we're going to see now that verses 12 through 19 tell us around this same time again when he was sick or shortly after he was sick that visitors came from Babylon. So the king of Babylon sent letters and a present for Hezekiah when he heard he was sick. So when he heard he was sick, he sent a message. Now we're talking, folks, the messengers would have had to gone up the Fertile Crescent from Babylon up into Assyria and down into Jerusalem. So they, you just don't go across the desert. If you were to look at a map, you don't go across the desert. So he sent messengers with a present to Hezekiah. Now, the chronicle records that this was a test to see what was in Hezekiah's heart. The chronicler records that the Lord was using this to test Hezekiah's heart. See, this is the thing that's interesting. God is there for him in his calamity, but God is also looking and seeing where is Hezekiah. Where is Hezekiah in his walk? And he's testing him. Folks, God tests us. And where we are in our faith. And we see this is happening now. So Hezekiah was attentive to the Babylonians and showed them all the treasures of Judah. Basically, Hezekiah at this point has got a pride problem. And in his pride, guess what he does? Hey, wow, thank you from the Babylonian king. Let me show you how God has blessed me. And we couch it with spiritual terms, don't we? Let me show you how God has blessed me. Show, he, he shows them all of the treasures of the temple. And then not just that, but look at what my treasures are. The treasures of the kings of Judah. So he shows them everything. This passage is also recorded in Isaiah, just so you're aware. Isaiah came to the king and asked why, did the, why the man came and where did they come from? So Isaiah shows up and says, who were these guys? Where did they come from? And of course, Hezekiah and his pride, oh, they're Babylonians. I've shown them everything. He stated that they were from Babylon and that they had seen all in his house. 
Everything is in his everything. I've showed them everything. Which was not a good thing to do because they would go back and report to Babylon there is a hoard of wealth waiting to be taken there. So Isaiah then proclaimed that the time will come when the Babylonians will carry away everything. So Isaiah says, look, you just showed them everything. Well, I'm just going to tell you the time's going to come when they will come here and take everything away. Everything. Now I want you to listen to this next part. The Babylonians will take away some of his sons and they shall be eunuchs in Babylon's palace. That's a prophetic statement, folks. Can I tell you how that was fulfilled? Well, you just need to go to Daniel chapter 1 where it talks about Daniel and his friends being taken and they were made eunuchs to serve the Babylonian king. So obviously, Daniel and his friends must have come from the royal line. Maybe not directly, but they would be from the house of David, possibly. From the house of David. This is a prophetic statement. Hezekiah proclaimed that the Lord's word was good since there will be peace in his days. Now, this is what I think is ironic. Here's a prophecy saying, look, you shouldn't have showed them that. Everything you showed them, they're going to come and take it all away. They're even going to take some of your own sons and make them into eunuchs to serve in the Babylonian palace. And Hezekiah says, wow, that's a good word. Good word from the Lord because it's not going to happen in my time. What does that reflect? Well, pride, selfishness. Because it's not a good word. It's a hard word, isn't it? It's a hard word where it's prophesying doom on Jerusalem. But in the eyes of Hezekiah, this is kind of, I'm telling you, this is, he's a great hero of the faith, but he's just as human as you and I. Hey, just so it doesn't happen in my days. Just so it doesn't happen in my days. That's the attitude here. That's what's going on. Well, 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 20 to 21, as well as 2 Chronicles chapter 32, 32 and 33, verses 32 and 33, record the death of Hezekiah. So the writer of Kings lists where the details of Hezekiah's reign are recorded. So Kings would record that it is listed in Chronicles. The chronicler records that Hezekiah's reign is also recorded in the vision of Isaiah, which we would call the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 36 through 39. Hezekiah died and was buried in the upper tombs of the sons of David. So remember, we've up to this point we've seen where some were buried in the tombs or near the tombs, but some were not buried in the tombs. Here's the first instance where we see a recording that tells us that there is a different levels in the sons of David as far, I'm assuming, as honor. And Hezekiah died and they buried him in the upper tombs of the sons of David. All Judah and Jerusalem honored Hezekiah at his death and made his son Manasseh king of Judah. Thus ends our discussion concerning Hezekiah, folks.
So next week, we're going to progress right along as we get further into 2 Kings and further into 2 Chronicles. And we're going to talk about Manasseh, and we're also going to talk about Amos, his son. And I'm just going to point out to you, they're going to be brief passages, but it doesn't spend as much time, but we already know Manasseh didn't turn out well, although he ends well. We'll see that as well.